Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are listening. I am here with Mariana Honeycutt, and we are going to recap the NAOP April program, which was a deep, deep, deeper dive into the white-hot industrial market here in Las Vegas, Nevada, or I should say Southern Nevada. The program title was Industrial. It's what's driving everything. But before we get into that, Mariana, thank you for coming back and recording takeaways with me. So great to be here. I will remind everyone that you are a civil engineer, the civil engineer and practice builder with Kimley Horn and Associates here in Southern Nevada. Certainly an exciting time to be in Southern Nevada doing our our line of business here. So something's changed about you since we were last here. Can we talk about it? Sure. I'll be right back. Hold on. I need a visual aid for this. Did you get one of those? I did. And you know what is actually really personally exciting for me? I was telling Cassie and Sam when they dropped it off that, uh, and in case you guys don't know who was listening in, I'm holding a giant trophy, uh, Spotlight Awards. Um, I was very honored to receive the Developing Leader of the Year Award. Um, and interestingly, that's my trophy. Yeah, I, you don't have to hold it the whole time we, we do this. <laughs> when I when Cassie and Sam dropped it off, I told them I said, you know, it's, it's actually my very first trophy ever receiving. Really? Yeah. With I, all your awards and accolades. Well, I never got a trophy. I got lots of certificates, and you know, your licenses and this and that. But um, and you know, I I did dance growing up quite a bit, so. Um, you don't get trophies and unless you're a competitive dance, but I was a classical, classically trained. So, uh, you know, it, and my, my brother and my sister did sports and got trophies all the time. I was like, I never got a trophy or a ribbon or anything. Right. So I was pretty, pretty proud of that. <laughs> so in case anyone listening kind of felt like they got glossed over, what we're talking about is NAOP Southern Nevada had its annual spotlight awards last month. I can't remember exactly. I can't keep all my dates straight anymore. Everything's like a blur. But the NAP Spotlight Awards are the recognition and awards for the commercial real estate development community. And along with project awards are also professional recognitions. And one of them is the coveted Developing Leaders Impact Award. And what I went to go get is my trophy for when I got this award. And I was looking for the date. And I'm glad it's here because I would not have remembered that I received this award in 2012. And you received it in... 2021. 2021. I guess it was for 2020, though. Yeah. And um, it's cool that you're an overnight success. You just wake up every year and get these cool awards. Well, I uh, truly, it takes an army. There's a lot of folks behind the scenes that really deserve the recognition for sure. So it's it's very much an honor. Yeah, and well earned. And I know that uh, for you, it was absolutely well earned. So congratulations on that. Thank you. So let's talk about the NAOP April program a little bit more. This was a very special program. It was a unique program 
on many fronts. First and foremost and most obvious is this was the first in-person NAOP breakfast program in over a year. So how about that? What did it feel like to be back in person? Oh, it was so exciting. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but just the build up to it, just the enthusiasm that we got from the membership. And I think even putting it together, you know, just even though it was a bit of a coordination, (laughs) the logistics of it was quite challenging. But, you know, it was really exciting just to know that we'll be able to see each other again. And it's just such a difference when you're in person with the membership. So let's talk about it at the coordination, the, the logistics and kind of what built up into it. You know, there's a couple of times last year when the programs committee and the board for NAOP were like, OK, we're back. We're ready to go back in person. And I was like, oops, no, we're not. And so it was always kind of like this push pull on when is it going to be OK? And we planned for this and we decided that, all right, April feels like it's going to be OK to do an in-person offering for the people who feel comfortable coming out and meeting in person. And it was at the Orleans, of course, and the Orleans, like every other venue, have protocols and processes that they follow uh, that are in line with CDC guidelines and state regulations. So all of that was in play, and we adhere to their protocols. I'll speak for myself. It felt great. The, the room is great where NAOP has its programs. The, the ceilings are enormously high, so the air circulation is fantastic. The food was served behind a a screen or not a screen, a plastic shield. It's not self-service buffet anymore. It's served to you. You just kind of tell them what you want as you go down, Uh, sitting down. The seating was all spread out on the tables. Yep. Instead of 10 to a table, it was six to a table. So all that was great. And, And, you know, folks were really respectful, I think, of each other, too. There was, you know, with the mask requirements and the social distancing, I thought that everyone did a really great job. So that was, yeah, I, I felt great. I felt like everyone did a fantastic job and logistically. So from the programs committee, we've talked about how fun it is to put on these programs and all the little geeky nuances, the nuances we can geek out on. And one of them that I've enjoyed particularly is when we talk about back in person. So there's some things to think through. We went from totally in person to totally Zoom. And now it's like, well, we're coming back in person. What does that mean? Do the people who want to watch this by zoom not get to do that anymore do they continue to do that are the speakers by zoom are the speakers in person are the is the audience in zoom how do we do that and here's what we landed on in-person audience moderator and speakers by zoom and for a very particular reason logistically right it, it always helps to have everyone you know in a quiet place we discovered this you know, as we were coming to the decision to to do it in this format, because even with the Q and A portion, it logistically was hard to figure out how we were going to do the Q and A and and have me there live as well. So it's just easier when we're able to you know have our speakers remote and be able to tune in in a quiet place and broadcast something live, uh, you know, undisturbed. And and so uh, the other upside to it is we were able to pull in panelists from, uh, you know, across the region. And I even I think it was Mike who he couldn't travel regardless. He was spending time with his family. He was like, hey, I can tune in, uh, you know, but I'll be remote. I can't be there in person. So it kind of goes back to what we discovered during uh, this past year and really being able to bring in some really top talent and different perspectives from across the region just by being flexible and open to doing different formats like this. All true. And then the other one equipment wise that you have to think about is, you know, zoom is such a phenomenal technology. It's easy to take for granted. You zoom in, 
uh, the panelists are zoomed in. You can record it and you can project it anywhere you want. So it's easier to project a Zoom panel into a ballroom at the Orleans. It's a much harder thing to record live panelists and speakers and broadcast them out. However, we're up to the challenge at the NAOP Programs Committee, and that's exactly what we're working on. So a sneak peek, some coming attractions, and then we'll get into recapping the April NAOP Programs with our takeaways. So April was audience in person, speakers and panelists by Zoom. May will be the same. June, however, ladies and gentlemen, we are planning to be fully in person with the audience, the panelists and the speakers. However, we're not we're not going to take away the the privilege and the convenience of Zoom. We're going to work through and try to understand how to record what's happening live in the room and project it out for all of you Zoomers that want to stay Zoomers. And we hope, too, that that effort, I think, will will have a greater outreach and we're always wanting to bring in new membership as well. So I think it'd be a great way to encourage folks to uh, learn more about NAOP and, and ideally join NAOP. Yeah. And if you just can't make it, like if I have to take my kids to school that morning and I can't make it, I have a way to still participate and get the information that I've come to rely on and depend on. And it's a great segue about the reach of NAOP. So the April breakfast program again was industrial it's what drives everything. I love our dramatic titles at NAOP. There were 69 people in attendance, including you and I, and 318 that were participating by Zoom that morning. It's a pretty good turnout. Pretty damn remarkable. Yeah. So we had another reason why this was a special and unique program. In addition to the return of the in-person offering, all of the panelists, all of the developers, the industrial developers, every single one of them, is a relatively new developer to the Southern Nevada market. All of them. And I think the oldest one is three years in the market, if I remember right. I might be off on that. Yeah, it's pretty. I think they're all pretty much about the same time frame. Yeah. So that's really interesting. It's, it goes to show the activity of our, of our market. So who did we have? We had Nicholas Egan, who is Senior Vice President of Asset Management with Caprock Partners. We had Mike Orr, Senior Vice President of Suncap Property Group. We had Dan Fogarty with Executive Vice President of Investments and Development with Becknell Industrial. And what do we call the moderator? If all these developers are new, the staple, we had the staple as a moderator, the industrial staple, Mr. Dan Doherty, Executive Vice President, Colliers International, who really wrapped this whole thing up with a bow for us. He did great. <laughs> the legend. The legend. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to call him the Altacocker. <laughs> so if he's listening, he's going to have to Google what that is. It's a Yiddish word. Good I, luck spelling it. can't say. It just sounds funny when you say <laughs> it. So Dan Doherty started the conversation to frame the conversation of when we're talking about industrial development in 2021, we actually have to go back to the year 2014 because Fritz with Prologis made a statement at a luncheon, at an industry luncheon, that in order for spec development to start making sense again, rents, le lease rates had to get to a magic number. And that magic number back then was 36 cents a square foot. And he declared that when 
Leases are getting signed at 36 cents a square foot. Pro Lodges will be in the spec development business again, and they certainly were. And at Craig and, and I-15, they built a spec building. It was 416,000 square feet, and that got leased before completion, which is not typical from what I understand in industrial development, to a company called Systemax. And that was how Dan started, and that was the first building spec building built. Did he say in 12 years? In six years. In six years. So he had mentioned, too, that in six years was uh, a record for Las Vegas of not having any spec. And it impacted the entire region, too, which I thought was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big deal. And he had also mentioned, I think, the vacancy factor uh, was at 15% in early 2014. Isn't that crazy? To think about where it is now? Yeah. yeah it's yeah. nuts, which is like virtually zero now. Uh, so he also jumped out with a few more stats, which is in the last seven years, since that magical time when Fritz declared this lease rate that had to appear in 2014 forward, what happened for industrial development in the last seven years? Delivery of 30 million square feet, absorption of 37 million square feet. Here it is, 5.2 vacancy. I think it is. Yep, that's what I, I noted too. He said we're building bigger buildings than we ever have before, and we're building them faster than we ever have before yeah he used uh a, an example of the Northgate project um north las vegas 170 acres 3.7 million square feet got all done completed permitted constructed in four years and he had mentioned that before that you know 15 years was pretty typical so there was a big uh, since you know 2014 since then I mean things are turning around bigger and faster than ever so the other thing that he said that jumped out at me as he was uh, then inviting the panelists to all introduce themselves he said there's also in addition to bigger buildings being built faster there are different types of execution and that's when Dan started uh, he introduced himself and Becknell and just gave some quick observations on the market uh, Nicholas did the same and then Mike, Mike followed that. One of the things that Nicholas said is, you know, true to their mission at their company, they buy, they build, and they manage. And so they entered this market. I think that was one of the questions is what brought you to Vegas? How did you get started in Vegas? Nicholas said for him and his company, they bought a property at Valley View and Arville. And then they, that was the buy part. Then they bought some land and started building buildings from there. And then Mike, conversely, they got into the market with uh, a FedEx Build-A-Suit in Henderson. And is that Mike's first experience with SunPoint? I, I can't. I think he was with another company before that. But uh, let me look at their faces because one of the three, all three companies are new to Las Vegas. Right. But one of the three. Mike had been here before. He had, okay. He lived and I think worked in Las Vegas locally before. So Mike is not a. New, new to Vegas person, like like the other. But new with, with yes. uh, Suncap, yeah. So then the next thing that they jumped into, which is a, an ongoing theme, it was a theme that was introduced at the January program with the developer dudes. It was brought up again at the next few programs. And, of course, we're talking about land availability and land costs in southern Nevada. Right, and Dan had mentioned, made a comment, too, that land is such a big issue for build to suit as well. Uh, 
I don't know if you caught that, but I, I just thought it was an interesting statement. And I was trying to I was trying to gather like quickly what what he meant by that. Like why why is land specifically such a challenge for built to suit versus you know spec or anything else, right? I don't know if you have any thoughts. <laughs> um, yes, uh, well, you just reminded me though what he said about executions that I I did write down because I thought it was so fascinating. You know, there's there's spec buildings, building a spec building, speculative building. To, to elaborate on the industry jargon. So that's buying land and building a building without a tenant or user. Like knowing who's going to go in yeah, there. So yeah, so I'm building for the market and the market trend. So high, a high degree of risk. Right. A little bit less risk is a build a suit. So I'm buying land, but I'm building it to suit a specific tenant or user. That was the example. Like, so what Mike did with the FedEx... Uh, Henderson facility. They knew Fed, they were building for FedEx. So in the designing of the building, they're designing it for their needs. They don't have to guess what will, you know, a, a random tenant or user need. Then Dan talked about this thing called spec to suit, which is a term that I learned from NAOP maybe a couple years ago. I want to say the first time I heard it, Doug Roberts with Panatoni used it. So what is spec to suit? It's in between buying land and building something totally spec and build a suit having a tenant already to go. So it's buying land, developing the land, maybe drawing the footprint of a building, but not fully designing the building. Basically and getting your, your pads set. It's right. exactly right. Yeah. And now I don't know. It's interesting if utilities or anything like that is included in it, but you know, getting, getting the land and the offsites all ready to go for it, I imagine is what that is. I, that's a rare one. I honestly don't know much about. I'm curious to hear more. Dan, tell us more about spec to suit. <laughs> Since you secondly coined the turn after Doug Roberts, or maybe he learned it from you, I don't know. But then back to the land thing, the other thing that they talked about, and you know these little nuances to pick up on. Uh, Dan talked about a new developer comes to town, you pick them up at McCarran Airport, or they get their car at McCarran, they start driving around, and they're like drooling because there's all this seemingly vacant land all around the airport, the southwest, everywhere you look. It's like, dang, there's land all over the place. We're going to make a killing here. But then you start looking at the parcels and you start realizing a couple things. Here's the, the term I put in quotes. Readily available for development. Land that is readily available for development is virtually not available. Right. That's what Dan Fogarty, I had that same quote in my notes too. Dan, you made an impact. <laughs> and, uh, and also privately owned. That was the other big piece of it. Privately owned, readily available property is virtually unavailable. And infrastructure. So there might right. be land, but the infrastructure isn't quite there. So that adds, you know this better than anybody, another layer of risk in, right. and cost, I guess, in bringing infrastructure at the time that it takes. True. And, and um, also with these due diligence periods, too, that, you know, folks have to get answers, uh, you know, some kind of level of certainty if they're going to move forward with escrow or, you know, even uh, get their funding in place. There's with these properties that there's just a lot of unknowns or there's nothing around it. There's a lot of due diligence up front that you have to, uh, you know, tackle to get some of those answers. And it's still very risky, you know, so definitely. You know, then they kind of shifted gears a bit. The cool thing about having speakers like this, Dan, Nicholas, and Mike, is that they don't just work in Southern Nevada. They have other markets that they are responsible for. So Dan asked them, Dan Doherty asked them, to share some observations comparing the Southern Nevada market 
to the other markets that they're involved with. And just to kind of jump off here and see if you have you captured any of, of this conversation. Dan Fogarty mentioned uh, between Vegas and Phoenix. Uh, not between. He said that Vegas and Phoenix are a relief valve for California as it relates to energy, labor, and construction costs for companies uh, that want a facility to serve the eastern seaboard. Right. Yeah, I caught that too. And, uh, you know, Dan Fogarty also focused uh, with that too, that things are changing in the sense that time is often more valuable than money or land, excuse me. And the, uh, you know, money obviously drives <laughs> a lot of that, but uh, and he was talking out the ability to come to Las Vegas and get your entitlements approved faster, to get your permitting approved faster, uh, you know, to go through those processes in comparison to what they're seeing in Southern California or in Phoenix. I mean, it's a it's a big game changer. Uh, so I thought that was a really interesting point. And then Nicholas put a sort of emphasis on that by giving some specifics. He said, shared an example in Ontario, California, there five years to entitle a project. Then he said in Vegas, he's seeing it, that it takes uh, two to four months. And in... Uh, with a side note, I want to add, it depends on the jurisdiction you're in. Okay. So. And in <laughs> Phoenix, it takes nine months to a year. Another side note is when he said that, I was watching the Q&A box and there was a strong reaction to the two to four months in Vegas. I don't. I think some folks in the in the audience that were listening and do not agree with that. That it's longer. <laughs> it, it's very much dependent on, like I said, the jurisdiction and and uh, also you know we're going back to some of these these property, the land availability and what what infrastructure is there and what isn't and what kind of public improvements you need to do. There can be a, a, a tremendous amount of uh, you know waiver zone changes we were talking about in previous mm -hmm. um, programs that do add time to that. Uh, but, uh, there's, there's certainly ways to streamline. So hire a engineer, <laughs> civil engineer that knows what they're doing. Like Kimley Horn and associates, you know, and I think <laughs> <laughs> uh, we work uh, like, again, it's a team effort here. So, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of folks involved in that upfront process. And, uh, we've got some good, uh, land use attorneys here too, that are definitely good at have, uh, uh, have crafted their skill very well. <laughs> Um, the other thing I noted here too, was that, uh, I think it was Nicholas who made the comment about the competition for property and timing, how, uh, there's, there is land available and depending on who's coming in, uh, you know, putting, they may have the resources to be able to purchase that and improve it. And so I think it just depends on who's coming to town. Right. And I think he used a couple of examples of how they've done that too in the past. So, you know, it's really dependent on what the needs are, the timing of it. Uh, obviously, land prices come into play. So I just I thought that was an interesting point, too. Yeah, they got pretty technical with certain things. He talked about flipping forward or doing a forward where someone comes in and controls a project or gets it to a point and then they sell it as a forward to another developer so that they take it from there. They'll pay maybe a premium because they, they did the upfront risk and whatnot. Right. It sounds very complex to me just yeah. from, from just the, the engineer over here. Just like, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they shifted a bit. Dan Doherty made a comment that really stuck with me ever since. And I've, I've thought a lot about uh, the sentiment was clear that industrial in Las Vegas, there's incredible demand. 
they can't get supply to the to the shelf fast enough. There's no end in sight. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the reality of 2020 in a in a, in a pandemic year, and the reality on the kind the industries that that had an effect on, and two specific ones that are historically economic drivers for Southern Nevada, and that is hospitality and conventions, which those businesses closed their doors in 2020. Right. And despite the negative absorption, negative net absorption that was caused with hospitality and conventions in the industrial market, there was still an overall positive absorption within the industrial market. Right. And the question is, what happens in Southern Nevada when those two sectors and industries come back? It's going to be crazy <laughs> on top of what's going on with e-commerce right now too. Right. So it's just, it's going to be mayhem. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think Mike Orr made that comment about the the conventions too. So I thought that was a really really good point to make because we 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 are still seeing them come back, and it, I think it's just going to come back swinging, right? Yeah. Another kind of thing that they all touched on was they talked about how do people look at Las Vegas? The messaging. Yeah. Yeah. And they really dialed in a bit on capital when they're. Mike and Dan and Nicholas have a project in Vegas and they're pitching whatever their capital sources are. How does the, how do the people with the money look at, at and think about Las Vegas? And Mike was talking about everyone equates Las Vegas with the strip. Right. And this is where you, you were talking about the messaging. What I wrote down like a little side note for myself is, you know, the challenges of a, of a successful campaign that the convention center does everything, uh, that happens in Vegas, stays in Vegas, that kind of a thing where the image and impression of Las Vegas is that strip, is conventions, is hospitality. You know, as the strip goes, so goes the Las Vegas Valley in the perception of everybody else who's not here. But the reality that Mike talked about, that Nicholas talked about, that Dan Fogarty talked about is there is a community here right. beyond the strip, beyond what's dependent on the strip that's driving specifically the industrial market. And I think that goes back to what, oh gosh, who mentioned it in the January program? Uh, Jim Stewart. Jim Stewart, yeah, where he was talking about this is this is going to be really important for Southern Nevada, Las Vegas specifically, to focus on our message and to what we're, sh what, what we want to represent and, and what we want to become in the future. I thought, I'm so excited for what, what that entails. Yeah, I had another side note on, on the capital discussion. Mike mentioned that capital and lending, they have a disbelief in the absorption that is occurring in Las Vegas. He gave an example of a project that they did. They started it in October of 2019. It was 750,000 square feet, and they had it full by October of 2020, if I captured all that right. So that goes to show that they, they had it fully leased within a year with a pandemic year, and there's just a disbelief that there's this kind of demand in Las Vegas for this product. Right. Do you think so? That there's a display. I think there's, uh, there is a yes and yes and yes. I do believe that, uh, if, if anyone is an outsider looking in, they see Las Vegas as the strip. They see it as everything, um, sh in some way depends on spurs from and whatnot living here. I don't see that obviously. Right. Um, What's interesting about this recession, this pandemic caused recession, one of my observations is last time this happened, it was our industry that were the restaurants and the hotels. 
Right. You know, it was the real estate. It was an economic collapse caused by real estate and rippled through the entire financial markets, but a lot in real estate and Las Vegas was one of four markets that was absolute ground zero and devastation. Maybe I'm different now. Maybe I'm positioned differently. I'm, I'm, you know, years removed from the global great recession as a professional. I was just starting out back then. Uh, I'm a little more established now. I didn't feel it like I did back then. Right. You know, I, I would, think every most can agree with that. If I'd you like have a restaurant that. or a hotel, you might. Yeah, I might think differently. That, you yeah. know, that was one of the one of my observations. And then as it relates to perceptions and then realities, like you can't argue with these numbers. Right. They're compelling numbers. There's no, no one's lying here. No, this is not a pro forma. These are look backs on what has happened. You know, when Dan was talking about since 2014, we delivered 30 million square feet. I think that I don't want to misquote the total market size. You you talk about a total market size somewhere around 150 million square feet of industrial, depending on what numbers you look at. And 30 million square feet of it was delivered in the last uh, seven years since the global Great Recession. And all of it and more has been absorbed. And then these guys from out of town who are so excited to be here developing property, you know, observations, um, to quote Mike Orr, continued demand. Uh, Dan, exciting market. You know, it's like, what do you wish was different, Nicholas? More land, cheaper, e-commerce will continue. No end in sight. I mean, that's what they're saying. So I thought the concluding points, I think, of the program was when Dan asked, uh, you know, what, what do you foresee for the future of Las Vegas and industrial development? And, uh, you know, all those points you just made were, were said, I think, by Dan Fogarty and uh, Mike. And then Nicholas had uh, concluded that and said, you know what? I think that this market is going to become very institutional, institutionally owned mm-hmm. market. Uh, you know, these large institutional groups are going to be gobbling up the market. And he predicted that in the next, you know, 12 months or so. And then he said, interestingly, that in the next 24 months, you're going to start seeing infill, right? Because so much of these large properties that that have hair on it and do need the infrastructure are just going to be gobbled up. Um, so I thought that was interesting. The other point, and uh, this is just because I'm kind of novice with some of this terminology, but institutional capital. I keep hearing that. Mm-hmm. What does that mean, Hiam? All right. So historically in Las Vegas, the, they, they kind of actually went into this. Uh, Jeff Lepore brought this conversation up in the January breakfast program. He talked about uh, who has been building the buildings in Las Vegas. And for many decades, it's been private families. The Thomas and Mack family has built the Thomas and Mack development groups portfolio. So this is private people, private money. They will go to their lending partners. It could be um, Nevada State Bank, Valley Bank, whatnot. That's where they're getting their money. But it's private people using banks. Uh, you, you know, you've got the Greenspun family. You have EJM. That's who's been building in Las Vegas. Well, now it's a little different. Now, um, you know, Jeff Lepore might go to a LaSalle to get his money. So he's a private developer, but he's going to get a different type of capital. And one, you know, one of the things that also in the same era that Fritz was talking about, lease rates need to be 36 cents. He also said something like pro the way that they get money and use money, they will build you a certain return. 
say it's a 5% return because the people that are giving them money don't expect a, you know, eight or 9%. Right. Whereas I'll say, you know, Jeff Lepore in that program said, you know, in Phoenix, it's always been build it or uh, buy it at 11, sell it at 11 cap. So the returns are different for different types of capital. So as you get into institutional capital, you're thinking about these are, um, the, you know, PERS. This is the New York Police Fund. This is uh, the New Jersey ed, ed Teachers Education Fund. These funds require a lower return. This is institutional capital. So because they require a lower return, a developer can take more risk. They might, they might pay more for land. They might uh, buy an infill piece. That that's sort of where that where that goes to the best of my understanding. No, I really appreciate it because that term has been thrown out uh, at a lot of these programs. I don't think anyone like specific for those like me who didn't know exactly what that meant. It, I think it's really helpful just to take a moment to really think and understand what institutional capital. Um, and it's these institutional groups mean and how that impacts our, our market, especially since, as Nicholas had mentioned here, that's going to be the big, big up and coming, uh, you know, activity that we're going to see over the next 12 months. So that was yep. interesting. Yep. It, so back to let's talk about DLI for a second. The Developing Leaders Institute, this wonderful program that you and I both went through me in uh, 2011 and 12, you more recently yeah, than that. <laughs> And this is, you know, Rick Myers with Thomas and Mac Development. He talks, he he teaches the first class. So the program essentially, for those who don't know, it's a 12-month class or institute. Every month the group meets. It's only 20 people that are selected, 20 or 25. And every month is a different class on the, the you know, cradle-to-grave facets of the commercial real estate development industry. And it's taught by local folks who are doing this every day. It ranges from construction to finance to development to marketing to design and architecture to civil to all of that. So anybody in this class, whether you are a developer now or up and coming, a civil engineer, a broker, a banker, an architect. attorney, an architect, anybody involved in the process can go in this class. But now they have a well-rounded view of the development process and Rick Myers teaches the first class and what he talks about in that first class and really drives home is a concept of know who you're dealing with and what game they are playing and everybody plays the game differently Thomas and Mac that has office buildings here at I'm pointing outside of my office at Jones and 215 on a ground lease with the county will do a lease with a 5,000 square foot tenant much differently than Blackstone will at Hughes Center. Same, you know, I don't want to say same type of buildings, but essentially it's a 5,000 square foot office lease with a tenant. You, they will approach it totally differently based on the game that they're playing, based on their partnership, based on their uh, risk tolerance, based on their capital uh, returns that they want, based on how they think about capital. If you're a publicly traded company, Capital means something very different because I'm buying value that might change my stock price. I'm willing to do things differently with money as opposed to what if I would be willing to do because to me, a dollar out is a dollar out. 
that's how I see it. Right. I'm, I'm so glad you gave a plug to DLI because for me, uh, DLI was a game changer. What I found was I was be- becoming very good at my practice, but I, you get so hyper-focused on it, right? And when I started the DLI program, I was just blown away by the amount of information that was shared and the big picture items that I really started to understand. And that really helped me in my own practice understand what kind of questions I need to ask, what kind of information do I need up front, what's important to the people we're providing services to. And so for anyone listening in who's a developing leader, you know, young professional, highly, highly encourage you to look into the Developing Leaders Institute program with NAOP uh, Southern Matter. We have, uh, we've won awards for our DLI program. So we've got a great opportunity for you if you're looking to build your practice. And um, like you said, cradle to grave, understanding the development process. It's tremendous. Critically acclaimed, nationally recognized. You get to hang out with people like me and Mariana and many, many, many others. Good plug. Yeah, I like it at the end there. And then the the continuation is, you know, the NAOP programs, the monthly programs, of course, where you come and get this kind of wonderful information, timely information. It's a good segue. Definitely helps, you know, that program helps you meet people, right, and feel much more comfortable in those kind of environments too. So yes, highly recommend. So let's segue to a close here and get some final takeaways. You were talking about how Dan Doherty framed the ending of the program, and he asked, what are your 36-month predictions? And each chimed in on a few predictions. I'll share what I have. You share what you have. Fire away. Oh, I'm going yeah, first. Yeah, you go first. <laughs> I have a Ladies pred- first. <laughs> My prediction uh, is very much in line with uh, what Nicholas had said, I I do feel, and as this, you know, as a civil engineer, we are upfront in a lot of these processes um, before many others become aware, especially during the due diligence and the entitlement phase, and just getting some, you know, site investigations done, and we just see an incredible growth in the market, um, as Nicholas had mentioned, with this institutional, these institutional groups coming. A lot of land is getting getting eaten up very quickly. Um, I'm excited to see what comes of this lands bill. And I do feel that uh, this is something that we're going to have to adapt to uh, as, a, you know, coming from a design community, uh, especially, we're going to have to adapt to very quickly because one thing that really stuck out early on in the conversation was things need to be done uh, uh, faster, right? Uh, than they've ever been done before. And this is putting a lot of pressure on on us as a consultants on the local jurisdictions. And so it does help give me kind of a heads up to you know help relay this information to to those at the at the the agencies and the local utility companies that we have to work with. So I found that very insightful. I had some insights. I'm going to share their insights and then I'll I'll give mine. Um, when asked about their predictions for the next 36 months, Mike Orr, on behalf of Suncap, said they will continue to expand here in Southern Nevada, and he sees continued demand. So that was his. Dan F. said he doesn't see demand abating. Um, liquidity and desire will continue to get its legs. He talked more. He said, you know, he himself is in 20 markets. 
He's ex- this is an exciting market for him. And he said something that actually I'm seeing a lot on. Uh, I'll give a little side note and then I'll come back to Dan. We have a listing that's uh, the Southwest Gas headquarter campus at Spring Mountain. It's 215,000 square feet. It's almost 17 acres. And the people that are coming to the table, we've heard repeatedly, you know, figuring out a project like that takes time and effort and money. And something Dan said, we're seeing there as well. People who are looking at it, they are focusing right now when the market is very active. They need to focus where, in Dan's words, you can make the most hay. (laughs) And the good news is that Southern Nevada is a place where Dan and Becknell believe that they can make some serious hay. Demand, he said, is outpacing supply and rents are keeping up with costs. One thing we didn't talk about is the ridiculous increase in construction costs Maybe that's for yeah. future takeaways. Lumber is all over the news. That would be just a one great, of them. That would be a great program topic too, I think. Yeah. He ended with, be excited about what the future holds. And Nicholas, like you said, I'll just reiterate, continue to see competitors from institutions coming in. You know what else he said? Actually, that was pretty interesting at the end there. He talked about um, three things that companies look for, which is, I think it was infrastructure, a work workers and labor, and turns, meaning if I'm sending a truck from Southern California, how many turns can I do? Right. I, I think that had to do with can they, there's a point where you can turn around during the day, right? Is that what you mean? Like where they can do their Correct. trips all in one day. And yeah, a trucker driving a truck, they can only go so far mm-hmm. before they can only, they can go so far and still turn around and come back right. in a, in a day. If they go past that point, whatever it is then they have to stop overnight. So right. that adds cost. I think there was a question also brought up by the um, in the Q&A about how they see like the Ivanpah lands bill, right. that opening up. And that's when it came up even more so. I think Dan Doherty put an emphasis on it that at Ivanpah, you can do a one-day turn, whatever the terminology is. But you, I think everyone gets the Yeah, yeah. I think we've heard it a couple times, yeah. Yeah, uh, I am, you know, knocking on wood every day. The activity that we're seeing is funny that, you know, I, my core focus is office building sales. And in the office building sales world, it's comically like the residential world. Uh, when they started talking about two, three months ago, they started putting memes out about how at the beginning of the pandemic, good luck trying to find toilet paper. And that's how the housing market is. In a comical way, that's how my world of office sales are owner user office sales. We have one listing that we put into escrow at 98% of list price within three days of taking it to market. And we've had since then 24 additional inquiries on it. That's just one little building. And there's many stories like that. That's what we're feeling and seeing now. Thanks to NAOP, uh, we got to go on a tour of the new convention center expansion just this week. And one of the things I learned, a few things I learned on that tour and really emphasized on that tour. You know, June is the world of concrete convention. And everyone's looking forward to seeing how the world of concrete convention goes because that, like the NAP breakfast program, when 70 people show up, look around and say, you know what, that was okay. The, we expect probably double will show up next month. Right. Same for conventions. And CES announced on, on the other side of that bookend in January, they're coming back in person, no more virtual. So that goes back to the convention business, the hospitality business, resorts world is opening, Virgin Hotels 
has opened, reopened, I should say, during the pandemic, Circa has opened. So there are things happening in those two sectors that these folks talked about that were totally dead as it relates to industrial during the pandemic. All those things are coming back. Segway to uh, to the next breakfast program. Why don't you go ahead and give them, a, give them a heads up? All right. So the next breakfast program is Thursday, May 20th. We're breaking news here because it hasn't been announced, but probably by the time we release this, it will be announced. So I think we're okay. Katrina's not going to kill us. It's going to be a hybrid, like we talked about. So attendance in person for members, I believe. I don't think yet we're opening it up for non-members. So attendance in person, uh, speakers and panelists by Zoom. For all the folks that want the speakers in there, we do too. Just give us a little bit. We're working on it. It's coming. But the title for the May program is Conventions, Hospitality, and Live Events. What will normal look like? We've got a few speakers confirmed. We have Steve Hill, who is the CEO with the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, obviously to talk about conventions. We have Mark Bedane, president of the Las Vegas Raiders, to talk about live events. That's another thing. We built an NFL stadium we never got to sit in yet. We get to use it hopefully soon this year. <laughs> it's going to be an amazing program. You won't want to miss it. I cannot wait. I am not missing it. I will be there in person. With me. With I'll you. I'll be there as well. All right. <laughs> Everyone, thanks for listening. If you like this program, if you like what you heard, leave us a comment. Leave us a review. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.